that last 10% is starting to get by. That was pretty good. That was pretty good. I think you guys meant it. All right. This is going to be good today. So up front, I need to say this. So I had, um, we're, we're doing in a series on the 26 healing miracles of Jesus. We're looking at the approach that we're going to learn healing ministry the same way the disciples are in healing ministry. They learned it by watching Jesus. They didn't get it from the Old Testament. They didn't get it from the Pharisees. They got it from Jesus himself. And so we're, uh, we're going to learn how to do it the way he did it. And because we actually have the same relationship with the Father that Jesus did. We've been adopted as sons and daughters, and we get to depend on the Holy Spirit the same way he did. So we can actually, as we're watching him do these things, we're seeing how we can now do these things. How we do them? Yeah. All right? And so I wrote out these 20, there's 26 different healing stories. And I wrote them out and I, in the best chronological order I could do. And I did it, like, back in the summer when we started the series. And somehow... Um, I had Sean do a passage when I was gone, and I had myself do the same passage. I don't know how this happened, so uh, the Lord must have blinded me. It couldn't have been my mistake. There's no way it could have been my mistake. The Lord must have blinded me in knowing that we needed to hear this passage double. So if you're like, hold on, didn't we just hear this? Yes, but um, hopefully I'll say some things different than Sean. So does that sound good? All right, turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Thank you. Yes, it is all good. Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, Surely this is the son of David. No, that's not what they said. As it's only by Beelzebul. I mean, just that name alone, it just sounds raunchy. It just sounds nasty, Beelzebul. The prince of demons, that this man casts out demons, knowing their thoughts, so Jesus has a word of knowledge, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided itself will stand. He's using their own logic against them, saying it makes absolutely no sense. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, I'm not going to be able to say that name without laughing. <clears throat> if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, who do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter? So now he's, giving the, now he's giving the reason why he was able to do this miracle. We're getting to see inside the mind of Jesus. This is huge. Um, uh, but, if I, but it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. You know what's funny is when I was, uh, when I was on staff at a church that preached mixture of grace and law, you know, where it was like, uh, here's the grace of God, but we're going to condemn you anyway to make you feel horrible. And if you don't tithe, the devil's going to come eat your crops and make you sick, and you guys, you guys have been to these churches, right? So whenever there was a, I swear, so I was the pastor on staff who got all the theological questions. Once a week, we had somebody call the church who thought they had committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I mean, like every week, there was somebody who was worried that they, they had committed it, and they were in this unpardonable state. I have not had one call since I've been to Zion. Isn't that interesting? So those of you wrestling, you may be the first, but we're going we're gonna to solve it today. I think you're, I'm, I'm going to take about 60 seconds on it. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. Turn them over to Luke's account. Luke tells the same account of the, of, the, of the same story. Luke chapter 11, verse 20. I don't think this one's on your sheets, but it should be coming up here. Luke chapter 11, verse 14. I'm sorry. Luke eleven fourteen. Now, when he was casting out a demon that was mute, when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. 
while others said why others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven as if opening uh, blind eyes and, and mute mouth wasn't enough you know only the, no one in the history of the old testament there had never been a blind eye open it always said it was going to be for the messiah this wasn't enough of a sign for them god bless their little hearts um uh, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Verse 17, but he, this is Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided itself is laid to waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will the kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, who do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Listen to this. But if it is by the finger of God. So Matthew said the spirit of God. Luke says the finger of God that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now Luke gives us a little bit more of a picture here. Verse 21, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he has trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me is scattered. Okay, this is going to be a different kind of study because Jesus, he heals the guy in one sentence. There's like no interaction no Jesus questioning him. No bringing him out. We, we, don't know, we don't know anything. Jesus heals him. And then there's this exposition where Jesus is giving us insight into how he approaches healing, how he's able to do these things. So this is going to be super helpful for us. So let's look at the healing in context. Matthew 12, 22. Then a demon-oppressed man. Just so you guys know, there is no word in the New Testament for demon-possessed. It's kind of an old language thing. The word in the New Testament is demonized. So whether you're demon-impressed, oppressed, suppressed, Underpress, overpress. I don't like any any pressing that's happening. Um, so you, you can have whatever control of the demon that you're willing to give over to. So uh, Ephesians chapter four says that um, don't give the devil a foothold. Second Corinthians ten talks about not to give the devil a stronghold. We see that people are demonized to the point where the diseases are coming upon them. So we're going to see here in just a second. Um, uh, the strong man has been bound. We're going to see here in just a second. And so you don't have to put up with anything. Actually, boy, I don't want to give too much away, but the, actual, the devil actually doesn't even have authority anymore. The only authority that he has is deception. Oh, my goodness. This is, so I cried as I prepared this message this week, so I'm going to do my best. I'll just keep thinking of the word Beelzebub, and maybe it won't make me cry. So, so okay, here's this blind man. He's blind, and he's mute on top of that, and on top of that, he's demonized, okay? So just, that's a horrible sentence. The demon-oppressed man who is blind and mute. I mean, this, this guy is, in a, is just in a horrible condition. So, um, so he's blind. He's unable to speak. He's locked up in this world of darkness. He can't see anything, but he's able to hear what others are saying and maybe even what others are saying about him. But he's not able to communicate back. Can you imagine that? He's blind, but he can hear what people are saying, and he can't respond back. So here he is locked in this world of darkness, and uh, there's this living hell that he's the pawn of a demon here. There's this demon tormenting him inside of this darkness, and he can't express it to anybody. And somebody brings him to Jesus. Now, this is a story that kind of just tantalizes you, doesn't it? It's like, who are these people that brought him? Where is he from? What's this guy's background? Nothing. In just one sentence, he's healed, okay? Other times, we'd find out Jesus has these conversations with people. He's touching them. He's speaking a word. He's doing some type of act, putting saliva. None of that. We don't get any of that. It's just a simple confrontation between everything that was wrong with this man and Jesus bringing the kingdom of God, the finger of God into the situation, and everything's made right. End of story. Boom. Verse 23. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? That was the title for the Messiah. Like, could this be the Messiah? He just opened blind eyes, right? And so the man is now speaking, and it says the multitude was amazed. Here's what the word amazed means in, um, in, in the Greek language. Standing outside yourself. It means they went out of their skull. They didn't know what they were saying or doing. They are freaking out. 
They're overwhelmed that they're seeing a man who's now seeing and he's speaking, and obviously the demon had left. So they are, they're freaking out. And in the middle of this, um, the Pharisees have their own response. So the people are amazed. The Pharisees, not so much. Okay, in verse 24. The Pharisees, just so you know, the Pharisees was a group of religious leaders who they're still around today. They just don't call them Pharisees. They call themselves heresy hunters. Okay, there we go. <clears throat> They've got whole YouTube channels. They can look at a miracle and say, I don't think so. Let me just say, it's pretty dangerous when you're attributing the works of God to the works of Satan. Jesus says it's actually an unforgivable sin. All right. Verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So the Pharisees are saying, okay, we've got to admit something supernatural is going on here. But here's the explanation for it. It's by the power of the devil. This guy is the chief. He's got the chief of demons helping him. That's how he's able to get rid of these lower demons. So they're admitting something supernatural, but the, the, the source of it, the origin of the power, is not God. It's, it's the devil himself. So who's Beelzebul? Who is this guy? Who is this guy? He was an ancient Canaanite Philistine god. So he goes all the way back to the Old Testament. And uh, he would be this would-be demon god. Here's how his name gets translated. Lord of the flies, or my personal favorite, Lord of the dung heap. That's a literal translation. So here's the idea. Wherever there's garbage, wherever there's decay, that's where this, the, the personality of this demon manifests. It's just a disgusting entity. Okay? And so they accuse Jesus of being possessed by this prince of demons here. Okay? And so uh, just real quick, I'm not going to talk about this much, but this passage does mention the unpardonable or unforgivable sin. Can we just deal with it here for a second? Okay? I'm going to jump down to verse 31 and 32, then we're going to go back to the meat of the passage. Are we okay here? All right. The good thing about preaching like this, uh, like going through these stories, is you're probably going to preach on things you probably normally wouldn't talk about. So let's just talk about it. Let's look at verses uh, 31 and 32 in Matthew 12. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. I think that's self-explanatory. Let's just keep going. No, let's give a little explanation. Let's give a little explanation. So what is the unforgivable sin? It tells you right here when they said, you're casting out demons by demonic power, and they're attributing the works of Jesus to the works of the devil. Okay? This isn't something that just slipped out of their mouth. This wasn't just a careless thing. Maybe someone's a little confused. They didn't know the source. They're new, they're new to the spirituality. It wasn't careless words. It's not a casual thing. It's something they had carefully worked out in their hearts. They're seeking to test them. They had thought about these things for a long time. So whatever you might think the, uh, the unpardonable sin is, Jesus said if the tree is evil, then the fruit's going to be evil. If the sap flowing through the tree is evil, the only thing that's going to come out of it is evil. Okay? And what was happening, what was coming out of these guys? The evil that was in their hearts. That, that, you know, they'd already determined this isn't the Son of God. We're going to kill this guy, all this. So the reason, okay, are you ready for the bottom line? The reason it's unpardonable is because they've cut themselves off from the source of pardon. If Jesus is now the devil, he's the only one that can pardon you. If you attribute to Jesus demon possession, then I have no Savior. He's the only Savior. Therefore, I place myself in a posture that's unforgivable. Verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It's only by Bilzebul. I can't even say it. Bilzebul, Lord of the dung heap, King of crap, the Prince of poo. I mean, it's, yeah, it's just... It's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. You can just see the, the, the nasty personality of this thing, okay? Verse 25, 
Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, again, he's using their own logic. This is ridiculous, he's saying to them. Uh, Every kingdom divided itself is laid to waste. And no city or house divided. He said, you can't have civil war and have a kingdom still stand. No city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, who do your sons cast them out by? Therefore, they will be your judges. He's showing them how utterly ridiculous this is. Then he hits them with this in verse 28. But But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Luke puts it this way, Luke eleven twenty, But if by the finger of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Luke doesn't say spirit of God. He's using an Old Testament picture of the finger of God. Remember back in Pharaoh, uh, remember Moses is delivering the Israelites out of Egypt. Pharaoh, the evil king, wouldn't you know, let my people go. I'm not letting them go. And so the ten plagues, remember that? Yeah. One of the ten plagues was said to be by the finger of God. Okay, it's an old expression where the power of God is made manifest. Okay? So here's the kingdom of Satan, and it's toppling and falling just because God puts out his finger. Wow. So what a picture there. Wow. Just by the finger of God, he's toppling this entire kingdom. Whew. Jesus, he's getting it. It is about to be so on here in a little bit, I can't even wait. You're going to fall in love with Jesus more. I was, oh my goodness, it's about to get so good. If I, by the Spirit of God, if I, by the finger of God, cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Okay, then Jesus, he goes on and he's illustrating this whole thing. What does it look like just for the finger of God to move? What does it look by the Spirit of God? He's going to begin to illustrate here, Matthew 12, 29. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house? This we're going to spend the rest of our time. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man? In other words, if a guy's guarding his house, you can't just walk in there. you got to take care of the guy who's guarding the house. Then you can take the goods, right? Unless he first binds a strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Let's read it in Luke, uh, Luke 11, 21 and 22. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he will take away his armor in which he is trusted and divides the spoil. It kind of sounds mean, doesn't it? Here's this bully coming in until you realize Satan is the one in the strong, he's the strong man guarding his goods. What are the goods? All these people who are oppressed. Oh, it's about to be so on. It's a violent picture. Here's a strong man in a fortress, fully armed, protecting his house and his possessions. And you're not going to get to his possessions unless you get to him. He said, the only way you're ever going to get to his possessions is if somebody stronger than him comes in, overcomes him, ties him up, then he can take whatever he wants once he's tied up and helpless. So Satan may be strong, but Jesus is the stronger one. And he says, I've come into the courtyard of Satan and I've trashed him. I've bound him. So now I'm in the process of just plundering his house and setting the captives free. So what was this healing? He's telling you exactly what the healing is. Oh, this is because I bound the strong man. It's plundering time. Remember the thing in Fantastic Four? It's clobbering time. It's plundering time. This is how Jesus performed miracles. If I, by the Spirit of God or the finger of God, cast out demons, then the kingdom of God, the will of God on earth, is coming into this situation. Okay, so what's he getting at? Where is he coming from? When did Jesus plunder the strong man? Because, or when did he bind the strong man? Because the cross hadn't happened yet. Oh, it's about to be so on. Oh, this is going to be so good. Are you ready for this? Okay, this statement has its roots back in the Garden of Eden. Let's go all the way back to Genesis. What Jesus saw himself doing was actually prophesied as it was going to happen in the Garden of Eden. You guys ready for this? I wish I could do this all in one breath, but I can't. <clears throat> when God created Adam and Eve... 
He gave them authority over the planet. Okay, so in our presidential system here in America, we don't have, our governors don't necessarily function uh, with the president, if you haven't noticed. They, they kind of do their own thing, right? But in England, uh, you know, there's a monarchy, and so there's either a queen or a king in place, and when, uh, there was a time when England ruled most of the world, okay? And when they did, when they had a colony, they would have a viceroy or a vice regent who would go, and they would act under the will of the king. So they carried out the will of the king on behalf, right? So Jesus made uh, Adam and Eve, they were his viceroys. They were his vice regents. They were his delegated authority on earth. In other words, God, was, God gave them authority. It was up to them how they're going to run the planet. Now, they were to do it under the wisdom of God. They were to do it in, in, with the presence of God. They were, they were to co-rule this planet with him. But the authority was given to man. man God wasn't going to just come and take over. He wasn't going to rule the planet. He gave that authority to man. It's important that you know that. This is going to be huge. So um, Satan tempts Adam and Eve in the garden. And the temptation came to the whole man. I want you guys to see how the temptation came here. So uh, remember, Eve looks at the tree that Satan's pointing out to her. And he says, here's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And uh, remember what the first step in temptation was? It said she saw that the tree was good for eating. Okay, what was it? The first appeal was to her appetites, was to her flesh, to get her desires and saying, you know what? There's some desires that God hasn't met that you can now meet apart from God. That's the first step in temptation. There's some, there's some stuff. You know, God, God's not really as good as he thinks. He, he, you know, he's slow in keeping his promise. You know, he, you know so you're going to have to take matters into your own hands. And it almost feels like, well, yeah, if God's not going to do it. And it said it was a delight to her eyes. Right? It seemed to be the prettiest, most delightful tree in the garden. Just the kind of tree she'd like to hang around a little bit more often. So physically, there's the eyes. There's the appetite. There, there, she's now drawn to the tree. The second part of the temptation was that it was desirable to make one wise. Remember this? What Satan told her about that tree. Not only did it appeal to her physical appetite, but he said that in the eating of the tree, there was some wisdom offered. You will be like God without God. There's this secret kind of wisdom. There's this devilish wisdom. So it's appealing to her soul. I can be wise. I, 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 can, have, I can have this thing apart from God, right? And, um, and whatever mood she was in, this appealed to her. Here's this fruit. Man, I'm this thing looks so good. I can have this wisdom. I can, here's the deception, guys. She said, he said, you'll eat of it and you'll be like God. She already was like God. Yeah. She's created in his image. So part of temptation is for you to forget who you are. Wow. So finally, so she's saying, it'll give me wisdom. I couldn't even get this kind of wisdom from God. I can get this secret wisdom. And finally, it affects her spirit because she was called to believe Satan's lie. In order to do that, she had to reject God's truth and follow the devil's truth. God had told her this. You can have anything to eat. We got this relationship. You're creating my image in my likeness, all these things. She had to reject that truth and go her own way. That affected her spirit. Okay? Listen, guys, you worship what you believe. Okay? So when she, when she, when she did that, um, the Bible says, uh, Romans 6, you become a slave to whomever you obey. So here's man's delegated authority. It was given to a man. And now what happened? When they began to worship Satan, when they gave their will over to Satan, they gave over that delegated authority to the devil. And what did he become known as? the prince of the powers of the air, the god of this world. Who is in charge now? He had the authority that was given to man to run the planet. So, so it starts affecting all of creation, right? Death enters into the world. And, uh, so they begin aging. Um, animals were all, listen, lions were originally created for man like, to, to work on our behalf. And all of a sudden they became predators when sin came into the world. Their stomachs changed, their jaws changed so that now they could eat food. There's flowers you and I have never seen because now they've been decayed into nasty weeds. Sin comes into this world. Death begins to come into this world. Are we doing okay?
So demons, they begin to crave a human body in which to express their own vile, malignant personality. They seek a body in which to lodge. Because what's a demon? It's a disembodied spirit. So it's looking for a body. They're looking for someone who has authority on earth that they begin to work through. Because they need a man to work through. They become like the cuckoo bird who has, comes into somebody else's nest and takes over. I had to look that one up this morning. I did not know cuckoo birds did that. And so, um, so not only do demons want to express their vile personalities, but they want to shame and condemn those made in the image of God. It's like a slight at the very God who, remember, angels are fallen, or demons are fallen angels. So they once were in the presence of God. And now they see these ones created in the image of God, and they want to not only express their vile personalities, but they want to shame and condemn those created in the image of God, striking with blindness and muteness and torment. 1 John 5.19 says that the whole world is under control of the evil one. So Adam and Eve, they, uh, they plunge uh, all of humanity into darkness. Now, what do you think God's response to this? Religion is going to say, I am just about... <laughs> Angels... Torch them. Like, like, I mean, like religion just pictures God up there as he has just about had enough of you. Look at God's response. Love, grace, mercy, tenderness. I mean, you think God would you experience the rage of God in the garden. And what does he say? He says, Adam, where are you? Remember, he'd been walking in the cool of the day. Listen, God's not looking for their geographical location. Okay? He wants Adam to willingly come back into his presence. And so remember, Adam and Eve, they realized they're naked. They're hiding with fig leaves. They got shame. Adam, where are you? Well, like, We've been walking every day together. we got this beautiful fellowship. Where are you? You can almost hear God. He's, he's, he's brokenhearted. You know, um, I want you to come in your own free will. There's no harshness when God speaks. And he sadly tells Adam, here's what's happened. The ground is now cursed. The sweat of your brow. The thorns and thistles. And, and, uh, but then God gives him the great promise. You ready for this? This is the very first declaration of the gospel in the entire scriptures. Genesis 3.15. And between your seed and her seed, okay, so there's going to be a seed that Eve is going to conceive, a child. There's going to come this ultimate seed, this ultimate child. And, um, uh, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It's a prophecy of what this child was going to do to Satan. He was going to bruise the head of Satan, this serpent in the desert. But this one, this chosen one, this seed that we're going to uh, look at here in just a second, was going to, so the seed was going to bruise the head of Satan, but this Satan was going to... Bruce's heel. You cannot recover from this. Bru the bruising of the head is not like, oh, I just kind of walked into a tree branch. I got like a little welt. Picture a 10-pound hammer coming down. Boom. That's the bruising of the head that Jesus would do to Satan. He did bruise, bruise Jesus' heel. We're going to look at that in a second, but that's, that's something that was, uh, you're able to recover from. So it's interesting. At, um, uh, all the genealogies of the Old Testament, you never find a woman mentioned. And what does it say? It's kind of come from a seed of a woman. Here's a prophecy of the virgin birth. There was no man involved. It was going to be the seed of a woman. The seed is that child born of a woman that shall bruise the head of Satan. Okay? And so, um, all right. Yeah, I already hit the bar. Okay. So when they were crucified, they bent your foot inward and made sure that the nail went through the heel. There was a bruising of the heel. So here, right in this very verse, is the prophecy, not only of the virgin birth, but of the way that Jesus would die. And what it would accomplish, the bruising of the head of the serpent. Are we okay? So why on earth didn't God just simply judge Satan right there? It's like, you stupid serpent, you stupid snake. I've had enough of you. Torch! That's my new thing. Torch him! Why didn't he do that? Okay? Why didn't he just restore man back to his place of authority right there? I mean, that was God's ultimate plan anyway. It was the plan of salvation to restore man back to their rightful place. Why, didn't, why do we have the whole Old Testament? Why did it have the whole outworking of the entire human race? Jesus born in Bethlehem. Why didn't did Jesus just 
Be born with it, born and just deal with it right there, okay? Because when mankind brought sin in the world, man handed jurisdiction over to Satan, and God is not going to violate his own rules. God's like, this is how I set it up. And if man lost the authority, then a man is going to have to come back and get the authority back. That's how it works. And so that's why it had to be a man, a seed of a woman that would come and rescue us. Angels couldn't come and rescue us. It had to be a man, but it was such an impossible task, only God could do it. Do you see the dilemma? Only God can do it, but only a man is qualified. Jesus was God in the flesh. The rest of the Old Testament is an exposition on Genesis 3.15. The entire rest of the Old Testament is not just these, oh, here's some cool stories. It's the, it's the tracing of the seed of this woman and the enemy trying to snuff it out. The Old Testament is like a football play where the person's running, and just before they get tackled, they lateral it back this way. The other person, the football's the seed. The other person gets the ball. They begin running it down just before they get tackled. Just before the life gets snuffed out, the seed gets passed on. The seed gets passed on all the way down to the Virgin Mary. Let's look at it. The seed is made known to us very early on. So, the end of, so G, Satan hears this prophecy, so he's on the lookout for the seed all of history. Cain kills Abel. And in the place of Abel comes Seth. Seth was the beginning of the seed. Eve thought it would be Cain. When he was born, she said, I've got the man from the Lord. She thought this is the seed that was talking about. Then Cain kills Abel. So why? Because Cain was in cahoots with the devil and tried to kill the one that was carrying the seed. So Seth replaces Abel. That's the beginning. And the rest of the Bible follows through. Generations and generations carrying this seed down. Noah. Uh, Noah goes through the flood. Why does he go through the flood? Because he's carrying the promised seed. Okay? And so then... Um, Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, right? Who's going to carry the seed? Noah prophesies, Shem, um, salvation will be in the tents of Shem. You see the seeds being passed down. What's the Bible? It's a story of the seed being passed down so they could fulfill the prophecy, Genesis chapter 3. Noah says this to Japheth, if you're ever going to know salvation, you're going to have to come dwell in the tents of Shem. And if Ham wants salvation, he says you're going to find it in Shem. It's in Shem's line. It's interesting because Japheth populated northern Europe, all the white guys, um, Ham uh, took most of the rest of the world, all the African Americans, all the black people. And it says Shem is in the, he went to the Middle East. God said salvation didn't come from white man or black man, it's coming from the Middle East. Wow. Begins prophesying it right there. The sea is getting a little bit more specific. Satan's paying attention to this. The direct descendant of Shem was Abraham. Do you see how the Bible just does this? Abraham was an old idol worshiper in the Persian Gulf, and it says the glory of the Lord appeared to Abraham. And he, he went from Abram to Abraham. And to him it was made known, there's going to be a covenant, and you're going to have a descendant. And because of your descendant, the old King James says, because of your seed, all nations will be blessed. So there's a seed of Abraham who would one day have this ultimate seed through which all nations would be blessed when he crushes the head of the serpent. How are we doing? Oh, it's about to be so on. So Abraham is a son named Isaac, and the promise is passed on to Isaac. Then he has a descendant named Jacob, uh, whose name gets changed to Israel. Israel has all, all sorts of children, um, Reuben, uh, all these people. And Israel comes along in his old age, and he's laying his hands on his children, and he's blessing them. When he gets to Judah, he says, Judah, you're the one. <laughs> he says, I know it in my spirit. You will have a descendant, and to him will be the obedience of the people. And the people should gather to him and obey him. You're the one that's going to carry the one. And Judah's descendants go on for a number of years, and everyone's wondering, who's in the tribe of Judah? Like, like these, these, all these descendants of Judah, what's happening? And all of a sudden, there's a shepherd boy born in Bethlehem. Whew. 
2 Samuel 7, verse 12, uh, 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 Samuel prophesies this over David. He sees the seed from the tribe of Judah being passed down. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up a seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. Gets passed down once again. There's a Messiah coming. He's going to be from the seed of David. He can trace his lineage back to Abraham. And so it was. All those endless lists of Old Testament genealogies, they're so important. We know Abraham. We know David. Those are the big shots. But they had descendants who carried a seed. And finally, there's one who descended all the way back through that line to a little girl about 13 or 14 years old in Nazareth named Mary. And to her, the angel came and said, this is it. This is the seed of the woman. And all through that line, Satan had a clue of what's going on. you got to realize, Satan is of, of supreme intelligence. He's had thousands of years to uh, look at the human history. He knew what was going on. He knew that it had been said it's going to be the seed of a woman. And so the attacks along that line, it's like the most interesting spy novel ever. It's like all these conspiracies to kill the seed. Before the flood, do you remember that strange passage when demons came and cohabited with women? What on earth is going on there, right? Why? Because Satan knew if he could destroy the race, he could destroy the seed line. So he tried to populate it with giants. Remember, the Israelites are in Egypt. Well, what put it into Pharaoh's head to kill all the little boys? Why not just kill all of them? Why? Because Satan put into his mind, we've got to kill this seed line. It's coming from the Middle East. It's coming from the lineage of Abraham. Satan knew that the seed would be born of a woman, so we've got to get rid of these kids. David was set aside to be king. Remember, Saul was struggling with demon possession. Remember this thing? David would come and play for him. There's a spirit that was tormenting Saul. And then David gets anointed king, and every time David's around the king, he's got a spear being chucked at him, clanging next to his ear, trying to take out the seed. You see the hatred of Satan towards those who bear the seed of the woman. Remember the grandmother named Athaliah. She wanted to be queen, and so when her son dies, of course, she got all the princes. I think there was like 12 of them ready to be in line. And what did she do? She wanted to be queen, so she makes the order, kill all my grandsons. Kill the entire line of this seed. And um, just as they're raising the knife, going through the nursery, killing all the babies, one of the princesses grabs one of them, uh, one of the sons of David, into the line of the seed named Joash. Just as it's about to be snuffed out, the seed is passed on. What's, going, what's the first thing when Jesus is born? Herod gets this craving to kill all the babies in the area of Jerusalem. Where does he get this craving from? It's demonically inspired to snuff out the seed. Jesus gets across the border into Egypt just at the right time. And so Satan watched Jesus grew, and he said, I've never seen a little boy like this before. And so he's beginning to form in his satanic mind, this must be the seed of a woman. And then there's a confirmation at the Jordan. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now he knows it. This is him. This is the seed. Okay, this is about to get so on here. Jesus, he's everything the human race needs. He has lived a sinless life, so when he's dying, he's not dying for anyone else's sins. He's representing all of humanity. He could actually take everything back that the devil stole. Jesus receives the gift of the Holy Spirit in his baptism, by which he could give him the power to accomplish his impossible task. Here's a man who's one of us, but he's without sin. So we went all through his teenage life, his 20s. Now here he's in his early, you know, he is at 30 years of age without sin. And he stands there on the banks of the Jordan River without sin, dependent, choosing to be helpless, receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what happened? Immediately the Spirit drives him in the wilderness to be tempted. I want you to notice something here. Jesus is going to meet with Satan. Satan did not set this meeting up. 
Jesus isn't like a pincushion in the desert. Oh, I'm just going to let the devil abuse me. Jesus on offense, and what's he saying? It's on. That prophecy 2,000 years ago, or a prophecy 6,000 years ago, four, I guess it was 4,000, 4,000 years ago, Jesus is on offense to trash Satan and bruise his head and take back everything that, the, uh, that he has stolen. Do you guys see that? The Spirit is the one that sent Jesus into the desert. Satan wasn't setting a trap for him there. Satan is in his courtyard defending his property, and now the stronger one attacks. Do you get the picture? Jesus is on the attack, and Satan goes, gulp. And Jesus says, it's on. There's never, Satan had never met a human being before since Adam. Maybe you've heard Jesus call, you've called Adam called the first Adam, Jesus called the last Adam. Here he is, the two representatives of humanity. Satan let his demons do all the tempting. But now this one, this is for the whole human race. Satan's going to come and do it himself. Never, had, never since the uh, fall of man has Satan met a man eyeball to eyeball. And here they are, right in the desert. Look at the difference, guys. Last time they were in a lush garden filled with abundance and food. And here they are in a howling desert. No abundance. Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days. And here the last Adam is coming to trash everything that, uh, that the first Adam gave up. And so he must be tempted exactly as they were at the beginning, except Jesus now is in a much worse scenario there in the desert. What was the first temptation in the garden? It was physical. Huh. You're hungry? You? You're the son of God. I heard it with my very ears. You're confirmed. You're the son of God. How could the son of God be hungry? Hey, look at these stones. They kind of look like bread already. Why don't you just turn them into stones and, uh, and meet your needs? In other words, satisfy your hunger in a way that hasn't been sanctioned by your father. Take needs. that you got the power. You, you, you take needs in your take matters in your own hands because God's not meeting you in time. Same first, same first temptation. Second temptation in this vivid, imaginary, visionary experience. Jesus is on the pinnacle of a temple. It's the highest point. It's a dizzying drop all the way down, and um, uh, the people will probably remember the if you remember the, Mal the prophecy of Malachi said that the Messiah would suddenly come in the midst of his people. And the rabbis begin to teach that the Messiah just might come floating down from the temple. Okay, so this man, it would make Jesus' life so easy. Everyone would know he was the Messiah. This is going to be so good. Leap off the temple, float down in the power of God, and you'll be known as the greatest miracle work of all time. What's that? It appealed to the soul. Appealed to his pride. You could have everything without the cross. And then exactly as the first couple, the final temptation was to receive power that would be independent of God. Satan says, fall down and worship me. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. That's what you come for, isn't it? He says, I can give you all the kingdoms of this world and their glory. What does he say? For they have been given to me. When were they given to him? Back in the garden. 4,000 years before. Adam gave it to me. Just one little detail. Fall down and worship me. In exchange for the worship of Satan, you're going to have all this power. You can have everything back. Same temptation as in Eden, but now Jesus overcomes Satan as a man. He did not just draw from his divinity. He could have. He... Uh, he did it as a man empowered by the Holy Spirit. How did he do it? By quoting scripture. Through revelation of the truth, empowered by the Holy Spirit, he, he battled Satan the exact same way that we can battle Satan. He didn't just zap him with some divine power. I mean, I, that's kind of how I would have liked to have seen it happen, but it wouldn't help us. We need to see how he did it as a man. Now hear me. Jesus was the first man to say no to Satan. He was the prince of the rule. He was the prince of the powers there. He was the god of this world. No one had been able to resist his temptation. At some point in their life, they're giving in. They're giving in the temptations. They're believing those lies. Every man since the first one had said yes to Satan's authority. Man had invited Satan into their life, and he was wreaking havoc. This was the armor of Satan. 
Remember it says if you can break into a strong man's house, you have to take his armor? This was the armor of Satan, all these lies over humanity. And all these yeses that a man had given him, that was his armor. He was protected. He had a full right to wreak havoc in humanity. But now a man has said no to him and said no with truth. And truth destroys a lie, and that was his armor. Let's look at verse, uh, Luke 11. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks and overcomes him, Jesus is the stronger one attacking and overcoming the strong man, he takes away his armor in which he has trusted and divides his spoil. Jesus is the one stronger who attacked and overcame the strong man, took away his armor, and now Jesus goes on to confront the world one person at a time and begins plundering all the spoils of the enemy. And wherever he went, demons knew exactly what happened. Are you here to kill, to kill us before the appointed time? We know exactly who you are. We heard what you did to our master in the desert. Are you here to do the same to us too? And they're freaking out. The demonic world, that's a great gossip way to, to spread it through the, through the unseen realm. Demons flee from Jesus. Sickness and death obeys him. Why? Because it's all part of the same system. That whole system of Satan, from his lies where he got his authority from, sickness, death, all that stuff, poverty, it's all under that same system. And Jesus came, and he pulled the plug on it, and now he's just watching it drain out, person at a time. And he stood in Nazareth, and he said in Luke 4, 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. What's good news to the poor? You ain't got to be poor anymore. Jesus paid for the forgiveness of your sins, the healing of your body, and the abundant provision of your finances. So you can have the provision for your vision. I'm not saying every Christian is going to be fat and sassy and be a gazillionaire. I am saying he wants you to have more than enough resources to fulfill every divine assignment God has for you and enough left over to help others fulfill theirs. He sent me to proclaim liberty to captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Interesting, he's quoting from Isaiah. You know what the very next verse was? And the day of judgment, the day of vengeance of our God. He leaves that part out because that's not part of his mission. That's going to come at the end of time. We're in the last days. That will happen on the last day. At the end of time, there will be judgment. Uh, boy, I tell you what, a lot of the angry prophets and religious people want you to think that we are under God's judgment. And if San Francisco doesn't repent, then we, God's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, I say if God does judge Sodom, if God does judge San Francisco, he's going to have to apologize to Jesus. He already poured out his wrath. Someone already took it. It's not the day of the uh, judgment of God. It's the day of the favor of our Lord. There will be a day at the end of time. It's just not that time. How are we doing? What is Jesus saying in this? Uh, uh, he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recover your sight to the blind, set at liberty to those who are oppressed. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm stronger than the strong man, and I've bound the strong man in the wilderness. Now I've come to plunder his goods and unlock every prison door and cut through chains like butter. I've bound the strong man, and now it's plundering time. It's mopping up time now. And now you understand what he's saying, what he's saying. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God's come upon you. He's saying, listen. If I, as a human being, dependent upon my father, who received him as a gift, if I'm throwing demons out, then surely those ancient prophecies are true, that the serpent's head has been bruised. 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy, another translation says, or render powerless the works of the devil. And Jesus came and did just that. He fatally bruised the head when he died on the cross. Started it uh, in the desert. Fatal blow on the cross. One of the pictures in Revelation 20 is of a, uh, of a messenger. Um, some translations say angel. I, I'm not, I, don't, I don't like that, message, that, that translation. It's the, it's the word messenger. It says it bounds Satan with a chain, and he's in prison. Jesus was the messenger who bound Satan with a chain. 
Guys, he's been rendered powerless. How could he do that? How could Jesus do what he was doing? Because he was already, uh, during his ministry, he had already trashed Satan, and now he's on his way to the cross to seal the deal for you and me. Jesus already bound the strong man in the wilderness. Now it's plundering time. He's unlocking doors and, uh, because the owner of the prison is wrapped up in chains and he's been defeated. Jesus did not just do it for us. He did it as us. Okay? And uh, because he did it as a man, he took back the authority that the enemy gave him, uh, that the enemy stole. Let me say, let me just close with these two pictures. Jesus entered into our history so we could enter into his history. That's a powerful statement. Matthew 28, 18. I'm going to close with this thought. I'm going to pray for some people. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Let me ask you this, guys. If Jesus has all authority, it means someone else has no authority. All authority in heaven and on earth. What's he saying? I got it all back. I got it all back. Go, therefore, because I got it all back, here's the same commission that you had in your beginning. Go show people what dad's like. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, immersing them in the reality of the Trinity. Baptizing someone in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is not just a formula that's pronounced over someone when you're getting them wet in the, in the a baptismal tank. So they've now entered into a new reality where they can be immersed in the presence of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through our corporate worship, through our daily living as we abide through the love of God and his people. You're literally being immersed, dipped, plunged into the reality of a God-soaked world. He says, teaching them, to, uh, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Boy, what were some of these commands that Jesus had given them? Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leper, cast out demons. Jesus took the authority back He's plundering the enemy, and he says, I want you to go and do the same thing. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Well, that's what makes the whole thing fun and possible. So as we pray for the sick today, we are continuing to plunder with the authority that the stronger man got back. I'll stand for closing prayer here. Whoo, Jesus. Man, oh, man. I wrote down this verse during worship. As the Father has sent me, this is Jesus speaking, as the Father has sent me, so I am now sending you. I added a little bit, a little bit to this one. As the Father sent me to plunder the enemy, so now I'm sending you to plunder the enemy. So I'm going to ask our healing teams to come forward, our ministry teams to come forward. We're going to have uh, some time for, do we have the oil or not? What's that? All right. So uh, James chapter 5 says, if there's any sick among you, let them call for the elders of the church. And um, the prayer offered, in, uh, let them be anointed with oil. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. And, um, yeah, and so that, that's a powerful passage. So we, uh, we spent time doing a little home, well, Mary spent time doing a little homeschool project, filling up all these little vials with oil. I want you to notice there, there's nothing magical about the oil. Okay, it's just simply, uh, let's just say, it almost has a, sacramental uh, conveyance to it, meaning that when you take communion, you're literally eating the bread, uh, body and bread of Jesus, and you're remembering what he's done. When you're remembering what he's done and you're putting faith in that, it's like the bread and body becomes life to you. So this oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. You're being anointed with the Holy Spirit. So as this oil touches your head, just recognize this is a physical reality recognizing a spiritual reality. 
the Holy Spirit, he, Jesus was anointed to break these things off me. The strong man has been bound by the stronger man, and now I'm going to be plundered. So we're just obeying scripture here. We do it different ways. Jesus didn't always anoint with oil. The disciples didn't always anoint with oil. But uh, we feel like uh, this Sunday, this is, this is a good idea to do. And so if you have a need in your body, um, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. is Before you come up for prayer, I want you to focus on the stronger man. I don't want you to focus on the jail cell, the, the, what's going on with your body. Don't come and give a medical report trying to discourage the people with how bad your problem is. Okay? Like you can say, hey, the doctor said I got this. That's fine. But don't go through the whole, oh, how long do you got? I got all this wrong with me. That's the wrong attitude. We're coming up expecting. Okay? Jesus told us to heal the sick, and so we're obeying his command. We're expecting really good things to happen. So I just encourage you, as you come up here, just uh, be ready for Jesus. Get your eyes on him. And uh, whether it happens instantly or it happens throughout the week, we'll take it however it comes. And um, let me just do this. How many of you have something you want prayer for that there's no way you could tell instantly if it happened? You have to go get a doctor to see it. Is there anyone in here that you, like, you got Yeah. So, so I, I, just, I just want our, our ministry team, I was talking with Chris Gore this week, and he said, he said about 70% of the people he prays for, there's no way for them to instantly tell. So at the end when you're like, hey, how many people got healed? People don't know. The number is actually much higher once people go and get it checked out. So just trying to encourage the teams. Are we okay? All right. And so, um, so yeah, as you, as you come forward, we're keeping our eyes on Jesus. Ministry teams, you're going uh, to be praying the prayer of faith. We're not asking God to do it. He's given us the authority, so we're commanding that shoulder to be healed. We're commanding that diabetes to, to be healed. And, and if you're able to check it out, we'd like to see improvement. And if you're seeing improvement, uh, you wanna, uh, we'd love for you to give a testimony to Jesus. This isn't so that we can brag. This is so we can say, wow, look what God's doing. So... Mary, are you going to be, who's that? Sean's going to have the mic, okay? So uh, look for uh, broad shoulders and a handsome face, and uh, the mic will be there, so. So, um, all right, so, uh, yeah, so if you would like prayer, we, we'd, love, we'd, love to, we'd love to partner with you guys, and so that, that's what we're here for. Eyes on the stronger man, and uh, the worship team's going to be going, so I encourage you, uh, we, we invite you to stay, even if you don't want prayer, just to celebrate what God's doing, to continue worshiping, and um, there it is. God